Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And this week, after taking a pretty good look at the year 1980 and all the things that happened in that year that would prove to shape music history, I started thinking about that specific period, the early 80s, in the context that it was a major shift away from the 70s, but also that it was a really new beginning in some very monumental ways. So I wanted to continue on with the idea. MTV, for example, represented the true beginning of the music video age and a cultural shift in how we would receive music. There had been music videos before here and there on shows like Solid Gold, if you remember that one, with... um. Dionne Warwick, I don't remember who the guy was who hosted, but they always counted down the top 10 hits that week. There was like a little 15-second interpretive dance segment for each song. (laughs) So funny to think about now, but made perfect sense when I was 12. Anyway, MTV was a full-on American cable channel. MTV, of course, being the acronym for music television. And it began its life back in 1977 when it was called something else. Sight on Sound, it was called. It officially launched on August 1st, 1981, as MTV, and it changed the music landscape forever. There were a lot of versions and concepts of music video-based television programming much earlier, some being around since the early 1960s, actually. The Beatles were probably the first group to use the video medium to promote their music back around the mid-60s. Their film A Hard Day's Night used the idea of music videos back in 1964, a great example of that being the performance of Can't Buy Me Love. Much later, MTV would actually credit A Hard Day's Night director Richard Lester as being the inventor of the music video. In the late 70s, the cable division of Warner Communication launched something called Cube. It was the first specialty channel cable TV system. The Cube system was comprised of a number of specialty channels, and one of these channels was Sight on Sound, a channel that featured programs and shows that were just focused on music, concert footage, that sort of thing. Now, because the service was created as a two way system, viewers could interact with the channel by voting for their favorite bands and songs. The potential for programming on an MTV-level scale was observed alongside the testing of similar formats on other networks. Around the same time, NBC tested a 15-minute music show in New York called Album Tracks. And former monkey Michael Nesmith was also a big believer in music video. He created a television series called Pop Clips and the series was apparently inspired by a program developed in the late 60s called Radio with Pictures that aired on New Zealand's TVNZ network. And this came about as a result of record companies providing the network with promotional music clips, given New Zealand was so far away, and few artists would want to make the trip all the way down there just to do a live appearance. All this testing was going on at the same time, and programmers were paying a great deal of attention to the potential of this programming. And after it demonstrated great potential, a lot of this content would be molded into what we now know as MTV. Fun fact, around the same time, the Sight on Sound channel was not the only one being tested. 
for future success on this system. There's another channel on the same system called Channel C-3. It would later become Nickelodeon. On Saturday, August 1st, 1981, at 12.01 a.m. Eastern, John Lack's voice officially launched MTV with the words, Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll, over footage of the launch of Apollo 11 and the countdown to the first Columbia space shuttle launch, which, incidentally, had just happened the previous April. The original MTV theme song then kicked in, playing over flashes of MTV's logo on the American flag, changing to show the logo in various designs. MTV producers originally wanted to use the recording of Neil Armstrong saying his one small step quote, but Armstrong owned his name and his likeness, and he refused. So MTV put a beeping sound over the quote. A shorter version of this shuttle launch ID ran hourly in different forms until it was pulled in early 1986 following the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. The first music video ever shown on MTV was The Buckles' Video Killed the Radio Star, which was actually created in 1979. It first aired on the Top of the Pops in the UK, and the video was intended to be a replacement for live performances while still promoting a single. The second video to air on MTV was Pat Benatar's You Better Run. The next three videos after that were Rod Stewart's She Won't Dance With Me, You Better You Bet by The Who, and a song called Little Susie's on the Up by a British new wave group called PhD. That name may sound familiar to fans of 80s hard rock group Tesla as they covered the song and released it as Little Susie a few years later. And it was actually Tesla's breakthrough hit, I do believe. So on the first day of programming, 116 unique videos were played on MTV, spanning 209 spins over that 24-hour period. Popular videos got repeated over the course of the day, and The Who's You Better You Bet was the first video ever to be repeated on MTV. Almost 40 years later, on February 27th of the year 2000, when it came time for MTV to play their one millionth video, they would repeat the Buggles, Video Killed the Radio Star. MTV's general format followed an album-oriented rock radio, or what they call AOR model, but in 1984, they would change that model in favor of a top 40 format. The VJs, or video jockeys, MTV would employ to introduce videos and interview guests were carefully selected to represent segments of the population that MTV wanted to attract as viewers. The original five MTV VJs in August of 1981 were blonde sex siren Nina Blackwood, man of the people Mark Gordon, popular kid Alan Hunter, hipster radio guy J.J. Jackson, and girl next door Martha Quinn. Due to the uncertainty of how successful the channel would be, the VJs were actually told not to buy permanent residences and to keep their second jobs. On a quick side note, as a young Canadian teen who didn't experience MTV until much, much later, it's funny in retrospect to see that MTV's Canadian counterpart, Much Music, established three years later in 1984, blatantly copied this template to the letter when forming their own group of VJs. 
With respect to who got airplay on MTV in the 80s, the spectrum was wide. Everyone from Adamant to Zappacosta got played, including the usual suspects, of course, like Brian Adams, Kajigugu, The Pretenders, Eurythmics, Culture Club, Madness, Motley, Prince, Ultravox, Duran Duran, Van Halen, Level 42, Bon Jovi, Jody Watley, The Police, Rat, <laughs> and on and on and on. MTV didn't just focus on the hot new artists of the day, though. They also played classic rock acts from earlier times, like Queen and Mick Jagger. They played Dire Straits, whose Money for Nothing song referenced MTV and also included the MTV slogan, I want my MTV, in the lyrics. When it came time for them to take off the makeup in 1983, KISS chose MTV as their venue for the big reveal. Three years after MTV launched, its popularity had compelled record companies to make it commonplace for videos to be made as an accompaniment to artist singles. With this increased influx of videos, MTV was forced to make changes to their infrastructure and the strategies that governed how they played videos and when. Instead of just having a simple schedule that would focus on light and heavy rotational airplay, the number of video categories was retooled from a simple light, medium, and heavy model to accommodate new scenarios. Light, medium, and heavy were retained, but four new categories were added, so they added new breakout, active, and power categories, and they inserted those into the light, medium, heavy rotation. This was done because they wanted to make sure artists were getting the exact amount of exposure commensurate with their particular situation. MTV thrived through the 80s, but as the musical landscape changed drastically in the decade that would follow, so would MTV. In the latter half of the 1990s, MTV played 37% fewer music videos, saying the novelty of the music video era had faded and that the channel had tried to reinvent itself to stay relevant. MTV cut its video airplay drastically by the mid-2000s, and by 2008, an average of just three hours of music videos per day were shown on MTV. This was likely due to the rise of YouTube and other social media as a more convenient platform through which to see videos on demand. Today, MTV has shifted its focus to rely more on its website, mtv.com, which offers additional content. So they've got MTV news, podcasts, streaming, movie features, artist profiles, and interviews from the channel's broadcasts. A video that got a lot of attention on MTV back in the year 1981 was made for a song that would do something that was pretty unlikely. It would help in a very significant way to facilitate the transition of rap from being a peripheral music genre into the mainstream. That song was Rapture from Blondie's Auto-American record in 1980. The album was released in November 1980, but the single and the video were released in January 1981, with the song subsequently going to the top of the charts. Now, technically, that would mark the first time in history that a rap song would go to number one. And I say rap with air quotes. Now, for the sake of clarity, 
It's worth mentioning that the genre of rap was not invented by Blondie as a result of this song. I want to be clear on that. Nor is Debbie Harry a rapper of any stripe. She herself would readily admit that to you. But that extended coda of rapture, as clunky as it is in some spots, did help to elevate rap as a genre on the world stage. And even some of the guys in Wu-Tang Clan have said that they got into rap after hearing Rapture. The video for Rapture was featured on Solid Gold, and of course MTV. In fact, it was included in that first 24-hour rotation I was talking about earlier. It's set in the East Village section of Manhattan in New York City, and a lot of the video was shot in one take. Just Debbie Harry making her way down the street, walking by a goat, Uncle Sam, graffiti artists, kids in ballet uniforms, an American Indian, all kinds of stuff. Grandmaster Flash and Fab Five Freddy, who were name-checked in the song's lyrics, were both invited to be in the video. Freddy showed up for his cameo appearance, but Grandmaster Flash did not. So artist Jean-Michel Basquiat is seen in the video in his place. Grandmaster Flash went on to include a scratch-mixed version of Rapture in his Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel single, but he edited out all of the rap parts. A lot of other really cool stuff happened in 1981, like Rush releasing their Moving Pictures record, Iron Maiden changed singers, brought Bruce Dickinson into the band, and Metallica formed in 1981 which we're going to look at next week. But before that, I want to talk about something uh, very bizarre that actually also happened in 1981. After Black Sabbath sacked him for generally just being Aussie in 1979, Ozzy Osbourne took the money that Sabbath awarded him for his share of the band name, and he locked himself in a room for months, just drinking and snorting it away, figuring it was going to be his last hurrah and that he would be going back to work in his hometown of Birmingham, England. However, manager Don Arden, who was managing Sabbath at the time, arranged for Ozzy to be signed to Jet Records, which was a label that was set up by Arden. Ozzy's first record, Blizzard of Oz, got off to a bit of a slow start. Ozzy had just left Jet for Epic Records by this time, and Sharon Arden, Don's daughter and Ozzy's manager, and future wife, decided that it would be a good idea to go into the offices of CBS, who is the distributor of both Epic and Jet Records. Sharon did this because she thought that it would be a good idea for Epic and CBS to see just how focused Ozzy was on the success of his solo career, in the hopes that the record executives would then take Ozzy a little bit more seriously and be more motivated to get behind him and his new record. Now, Sharon had set up the opportunity for Ozzy to give a short talk, thanking and congratulating the efforts of the record company employees thus far. At the end, because Ozzy is such a showman and a weirdo, he convinced Sharon that he should bring three white doves with him in his pockets so he could release them into the audience of employees at this annual sales convention they were attending when he was finished his little speech. But... Ozzy had consumed an entire bottle of brandy in the car on the way to the convention. 
So not long after coming in, sitting down and listening to a PR woman drone on about something that bored him, Ozzy went over and sat on the arm of this woman's chair and asked her if she liked animals. He then proceeded to pull one of these doves out of his pocket and bite its head off in front of her. After spitting the dove's head out on the table, he did it again with another dove. Security then threw him out, and the record company said he'd never work for them again. Instead of trying to mitigate the damage, Sharon capitalized on the shock value of the event in the press, and the story spread quickly to every news outlet in America. Within days, the Blizzard Vaz record entered the U.S. charts, going on to sell millions of copies, and it would unleash an absolute madman who would later go on to bite the head off of a bat, urinate on the Alamo, snort ants, and so, so much more. (laughs) Ozzy Osbourne, pillar of society. All right, like I said next week, We're going to be looking at some other stuff that happened in the early 80s. But for now, I'm going to conclude here. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury. I'm Brent Jensen. Connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or on my website, brentjensenmusic.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Till next time, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.